The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. Please remain standing for the reading of the scriptures. Pastor Barnes. You turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll read the whole chapter, um, but we'll be looking at verses 13 through 17 which might disappoint some of you, but just 13 through 17. Hear God's holy word. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold to traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. This is God's word. May he bless it to us. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Our great God, as you well know, and as we increasingly need to know, We are not worthy uh, to take up your words upon our lips. Lord, we are not worthy of the smallest crumbs of your mercy. And so we plead the righteousness of another, even our Lord Jesus Christ. We come to you as your own dear children, asking you now for grace. Not only that you would forgive our many sins, but now that you would strengthen us as we look to your word and look to you as children to a father. We know that you are able and ready to help us. We pray that by your spirit, we would be able to understand well the things that you have committed to us in your word for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the great challenges of any organization or institution is to maintain some semblance of continuity and stability in the midst of ever-happening change. And for all of its problems and for all of its uh, bureaucratic morass, the military has kind of figured out a way to do that. Uh, 
The way the military has done this is through something called a standing order. What a standing order is, is a principle uh, defined simply as, as something that remains in force until amended or canceled. And so for the very even lowest echelons of military structure, a company or a battalion, when a commander leaves and another commander comes, these standing orders are certain things that remain in force. They remain uh, present unless they are explicitly retracted. And there's a function for this. The, the purpose for something like this is so that even the lowest and simple-minded uh, soldier will know whatever else happens, I know I have to do this. I have to remain uh, faithful to that principle or that directive or that order. Standing orders, as I said, help you maintain some sort of constancy, stability, continuity in the midst of change and in the midst of uncertainty. In a certain effect, in a certain way, it keeps you from having to make decisions. You simply receive and obey. As you look at uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, and what we're not going to be doing today is puzzling out uh, who this man of lawlessness is or going through all the controversies surrounding that. But what you can pick up uh, from this text, and you have any, uh, any grasp of the two letters to the Thessalonican church, you know that these were a people who, it seems, were uh, excitable. Uh, they had an eschatological interest. You even see here at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul is exhorting them not to be soon shaken uh, in mind or troubled. And what he's seeking to do is in the midst of all these uncertainties and the questions that they have, and if you remember the life of the Thessalonican church, they also faced rather intense persecution, so much so that Paul was only able to be there for three weeks before he was run out of town. What Paul is going to do is that on the tail end of this text where there's all these difficulties and all these uncertainties, these things that might unsettle the church, even the man of lawlessness and the persecution that arise from him, he's going to set before the congregation what I believe are three standing orders uh, to help direct their lives and help them live. We're going to look at verses 13 through 17, and I believe what this text teaches us, and that even in the worst events imaginable, God calls his saints to an unflappable stability. That even uh, when they're faced with uh, whatever this great calamity is uh, ushered in by this man of lawlessness, the call and what the Spirit enables the people of God to do is to remain stable, steadfast, focused upon the task that God would give them. I think the parallel between uh, this theme and even the life in which we now live are rather clear, aren't they? There are problems abound. Uh, there are churches, our churches face constant cultural pressures. The winds of change never, ever cease, although there's really nothing new under the sun. Uh, there is uh, burgeoning tyranny. There is weakness. There is sin. There is corruption. There is deceit in every side. And what many saints ask is, well, what am I supposed to do? What should I be doing? My exhortation to you this morning is that you should cultivate faithfulness and fidelity to God's standing orders in whatever sphere God has given you, whether it's your home, whether it's your own life, whether it's your seminary community, your local church, your local community, cultivate God's standing orders in your sphere. So we're going to look at three standing orders as we think about this theme of God calling his saints to an unflappable stability, even in the worst events imaginable. What we'll see first of all in verses 13 and 14 is that the first standing order for the church is to maintain gratitude to God, to maintain a heart disposition 
of deep and profound gratitude. Specifically, what you see here in the text is gratitude for the sovereign grace of the triune God. Now, Paul opens this up with the strong adversative here. He's opened up these troubling things, but he says, but, but we brothers, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you. And what Paul's first uh, action here is, is that he is giving thanks to his God, exemplifying this principle for the saints in Thessalonica, for the grace that the triune God has shown to the brethren. Paul himself embodies that principle that David uh, wrote many years prior. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Paul is writing, as you know, uh, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy writing to this church that they loved. And they knew this church, albeit briefly. They knew this church and their conversion was genuine. They knew that it was powerful. If you go back to chapter one of the first letter, uh, that they knew that they were elect of God because they had turned from idols. They were serving the living and true God. The, uh, the reception of the preached word was palpable. It was manifest. It was powerful. It changed people's lives. They knew that these people, the Thessalonians, were true recipients of the grace of God because uh, they received it and maintained faithfulness to it, even in the midst of great affliction. Just by way of one particular application, brothers and sisters, I would urge you to remember that reflection, a life of reflection, is essential for gratitude. Paul, in the midst of all of the sorrows he faced, was quick, and you see this throughout all of his letters, he was quick to remember the good things that God had done for his people. He called to mind things of the past, and that motivated his offering up of that sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, the way he viewed other believers in the midst of and in spite of all the manifold problems that they often uh, caused and often were interacting with, is he remembered that these are people who are fellow objects of the grace of God. Standing order uh, number one, gratitude to God, specifically here for grace of God to the brethren, but more generally, what you're going to find is that this gratitude is actually rooted, rooted in the eternal purpose of the triune God. Look at what Paul says. We're bound to give thanks to you, to God, always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which you called you by our gospel. A heart that is grateful will be a heart that begins to come to grips with the depth of grace and love and kindness that we find in God himself. And what you see Paul doing, first of all, is reflecting upon the sovereign choice of the Father, this choice of election, which was from the beginning. I don't think I should spend much time arguing for the reality of the electing love of God, at least in this environment. But what you do know is Paul refers to this in chapter one of the first letter, again, knowing their election of God, he opens it up. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, and something I've referred to as symphonic Trinitarianism, this glorious uh, exposition of the Father's, Son's, and Spirit's grace in the life of uh, God's people. What you will find as you study the doctrines of God's grace, the doctrine of election, as you seek to teach this to others, as you seek to embody it in your own life, the great objection to this doctrine is fueled by that infernal enemy called pride. It's pride that exalts itself before a God. It's pride that would seek to claim some 
some handhold of, uh, of contribution rather than the bare glorious grace of God. I want you to see that the cause, the cause of this purpose of God's choice from the beginning, what is it? What is it? One of the great texts of the Bible on this theme is if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, as some of you probably know, and the Lord is talking to his people and he's saying, you know, I chose the nation of Israel. It wasn't because you're the greatest of all nations. It wasn't because you had the most, uh, you had the most capable uh, special operations forces. It wasn't because you had the greatest religious elites. In fact, you were the least of all nations. What's the cause? What is behind the sovereign choice of God? It's nothing conditional in the people. It's nothing that God foresaw in the future. But as you must know, it is simply his love. The Father's eternal, unearned, unmerited love. This is why he places love upon his people. B.B. Warfield once wrote, He that knows that it is God who has chosen him and not he that has chosen God, and that he owes his entire salvation in all its processes, in every one of its stages, to this choice of God. If you know that, you would be an ingrate indeed if you did not give the glory of his salvation solely to the inexplicable, elective love of God. Brothers, never shy away from preaching the sovereign, eternal love of this God. This is why it can be rightly said, Calvinism is the gospel. Paul is grateful because of the sovereign choice of the Father. He also then proceeds to the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And another problem that we often run into when we talk about this doctrine of election uh, for those who have embraced it is then there begins to be perhaps some prying into, which our standards forbid, but also this speculation about it. But I want you to understand something that when you preach the truth of the election uh, by the love of God the Father, the focus is not so much on the intricacies and the mysteries of the doctrine biblically, but the focus upon the force of the doctrine practically. What real election does in the life of a Christian, one sanctified by the Spirit, is it actually affects a renovation of life. This is what the sanctifying work of the Spirit does, the separation unto God. And another way of saying this is the biblical question, read through the New Testament, you will not find the question, am I elect? But the question is, am I holy? Am I holy? And if you're holy, then you're working out that election, you're making it sure as you add to all those virtues, love, etc., as Peter d- talks about in his second letter. And so this is what you need to understand is that the love of the Father is then made, uh, is then embraced through the work of the Spirit as he comes and deals with that sinner. And it's only the Spirit's power, the Spirit's power alone that can effect such a change in the life of a sinner. A life of one who loves the darkness and hates the light, who loves the lie and uh, hates the truth. The Spirit comes and changes, persuading, enabling to bring us then to Jesus Christ as he's freely offered in the gospel. And this is the third thing Paul gets to, isn't it? He talks about that sovereign choice of the Father, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. But then he comes to that wonderful principle of that faith-wrought union with the Son. This is the gospel call. Look at the text. It's, he's talking about that salvation through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel. 
What the gospel call is, is it calls sinners to come through faith into union, into a living, saving, vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that union, you derive all your strength, all your hope, all your confidence. The goal of that call, the object is to come into union with Jesus Christ and from him to receive those benefits that he has accomplished for his people. And the goal is that one that sets before us that great hope. That is what Paul says, the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, both the uh, exaltation of his glory for his completed work that we long to see perfected, but also the sharing rightly as creatures in the glory of the Son when we stand with him, worshiping him as the glorified bride for all eternity. This is something that magnifies the grace of our Savior. You need to remember this. Jesus does not derive a quantitative uh, addition of glory through the salvation of his people. You cannot increase the glory of the one who is himself infinite. But that glory is shared by grace with his church. And it is for this reason that we ought to be the most grateful of people. Now, what is the effect of gratitude in the life of a believer? What is the effect of this grace for which we ought to be grateful in the life of the believer? Well, certainly it leads you to a real and uh, profound humility. Um, my friend Nick Thompson, a newer minister in my presbytery, eloquently defined humility as a downward disposition of a Godward self-perception. You understand who you are before God and who God is as he's drawn near to you. And that leads you to true humility. Certainly it will lead you to true adoration. And these are true generally of, these, of, this, of an effect of this wonderful grace from the triune God. But narrowly in the text, I want you to see how powerfully uh, applicable this is. Whatever you believe about the man of lawlessness, whatever you believe he is or will be, what you do know is that the way he actually affects his wickedness, the way he brings it about, his primary tactic, it's deceit. He's a liar. You can even see there at the end at verse 9, uh, it's chapter 2, verse 9, that the coming of this lawless one is by the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. This is the, this is the explicit contrast to what Jesus actually did in uh, power and signs and, and glorious wonders to confirm the truth. This is the anti-working uh, of the man of lawlessness. And what happens is it's so powerfully deceitful that this is the final test, and not only the final test for the people of God, but it's the final nail in the coffin of judgment for the truth-hating world. And he sends the spirit of strong delusion so that they might not believe, so that they'd be consigned to darkness. This is, I believe, a parallel to what Jesus says when he says false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive the elect, if that were possible. And here's that application for a standing order of gratitude for the grace of God to the brethren rooted in eternity is that it is the electing grace of the triune God, which is the reason, the only reason, that the church is not swept away with the world. 
It is the constraining grace of God that keeps the sinner back from running after or being swept away by the torrent of the world's deceit. Calvin says, here, therefore, is the true port of safety that God who elected us of old will deliver us from all the evils that threaten us. For we are elected to salvation and we shall therefore be safe from destruction. My friends, God's grace, decreed in love from eternity, executed in time, applied by the Spirit, this is what keeps the people of God back from the shipwreck that the world is rapidly approaching and from hell itself. Maintain a deep and profound and abiding gratitude in your life for the grace of God. This is standing order number one. Standing order number two. We see it in verse 15. We are to be grateful to God first. Secondly, we are to maintain faithfulness to the word. And specifically, faithfulness to the divinely given apostolic gospel. You have this, uh, therefore, in light of these things, in light of the glorious grace of the triune God, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. I want to put our hands around these two major uh, forceful words, standing fast and holding fast, because this is what characterizes a life that is faithful to the truth, the divinely given apostolic gospel. First, stand fast upon the truth. While it's been embellished some, as most wars are in the past, that great battle of Thermopylae, if you remember King Leonidas uh, standing against the Persian hordes in that little narrow area, for a couple of days, although they were eventually overrun by overwhelming odds and betrayal, it was an immense, it was an immense feat for them to stand fast as long as they did. And sometimes Christians think that for the church to be successful and for the church to be faithful, we must be taking the high ground, and there are times for that. But sometimes standing fast is a Herculean task. It's a monumental task. This is what Paul is telling this little fledgling church to do. Stand fast, remain steadfast, remain immovable. This is a great high task of faith. This is solid ground, standing upon the solid ground of the truth of the word of God. Stand fast, holding the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. You stand fast. Do not be swayed by the pressures of the world. Do not be swayed to to deny the word of God or its righteous implications. Don't be ashamed of what God's word teaches. And you do this by holding fast to the truth. Holding fast to the word of God. This is the focal point of Satan's attack. If you look back at verse 2, as I mentioned just a bit earlier, Paul is saying, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us as though the day of Christ had come. It appears that the Thessalonican church had received false letters. They were feeling blowing in their faces the winds of false doctrine. There were false claims. All of these things are uh, intended to sway believers to turn them from uh, a living and vital certainty in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And what Paul is seeking to do is saying, don't, don't listen to that. Remember what we taught you. Paul's admonition here, Paul's admonition here is, is not, you must become an expert in all things false. He's not saying you need to make sure that you learn the subtleties of that vain philosophy or the subtleties of that false ideology. No, what he's saying is you need to become experts in the truth. A friend of mine would often tell me before he uh, moved away to another church up in Virginia, he was uh, one of our deacons. He had a friend who was a banker and he said that their training was always, they they weren't trained in order to identify all the ways bills could be counterfeit. They were trained to learn all the ways that a bill was actually genuine. And so that if in any point it deviated from what was true, they could identify it and they could avoid it. Now, certainly, certainly there are times where we need to learn, as Paul knew, various things and where false ideologies are coming from and what their distinctives are. But for the people of God, for the sheep, what they need, the greatest spiritual uh, Immune system is health and truth. That's what you need to give to yourself and to give to your people. Now, these traditions that Paul is talking about, these are not the man-made false Roman Catholic traditions. It's not the vain philosophical traditions that Paul casts aside in Colossians 2.8 that carries people away captive. No, no. This is the pattern of doctrine that he taught them. It's also the standard of truth that he wrote to them. It's the word, the apostolic preaching, and the epistle, the apostolic writing. In other words, what he's saying is hold fast to the scriptures and hold fast to sound biblical apostolic preaching. Hold fast to the New Testament as that final part of divine revelation that was being given to the church at that time and has been given to us in its entirety. I want to encourage you in this as standing order number two is faithfulness to the word. Those of you preparing to be ministers in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to understand something that a minister's usefulness for the kingdom of Christ. Has very little to do with the minister himself. You are entirely expendable. But you are a minister. That is, you serve something that is not yours. It is given to you that it might be given to others. It has very little to do with you, but it has everything to do with the degree to which, one, you are faithful to the Lord of glory and his truth. And two, the degree to which you strive to see the souls committed to you conformed to the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Do not deviate from the truth of the word of God, regardless of what's happening around you. This is order number two. Know the truth, love the truth, filter everything through the truth, teach your children the truth, stand on the truth, pray the truth of God's promises, preach the truth, and plead with God to govern us by it. Gratitude to God, number one. Faithfulness to the word, number two. And then if you live a life of gratitude in faithfulness to the word of God, what will be the effect? This is standing order number three. That is holiness in life. Paul ends this section, verses 16 and 17, with something of a benedictory prayer and blessing upon the people. And what a holy holy life looks like for the people of God. It's a life lived upon the comfort that the Lord provides. What he is saying here is, may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father 
Remember, he's drawing together these themes that he's already addressed earlier in this section. May he who's loved us and he's given us an everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. May the effect then be, as you remember these things in the light of all these other uh, difficulties and all the other deceit, may he comfort your hearts. May he establish you in holiness. A life of holiness is a life comforted by the grace of God. A life comforted by the grace of God. It's a life comforted in hope. We see this in Romans chapter 8, don't we? Creation groans. Spirit groans. We groan. We have every many, many reasons to groan. But that is a groaning that is not the grumbling of the unbelieving generation in the wilderness. But it's the groaning with eager expectation. It's a groaning not in the frenzy of uncertainty, but by faith, longing for the full realization of all the things that God has promised. A holy life is a life comforted by the grace of God. And you can find a wide swath of applications to this all through the scriptures. Do you have affliction? How is a a life that is holy comforted in affliction? Well, we see in 2 Corinthians 1, it's by drawing near to the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who gives in Christ a direct proportion of grace suitable to our needs. Do you fear great evils? Psalm 37 tells you, do not fret over the evil ones who prosper. They're going to fade like the green grass. They're going to wither like the green herb. Do you need to repent? Psalm 32 gives you all of the incentive you need. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. If your strength is sapped out of you because of your unrepentant heart, David says, just repent and it will be returned to you. Do you have uncertainty? Maybe maybe you're unsettled because you have that that inquisitive uh, instinct where you're wanting to pry into these things. Well, David has a word for you. I do not fret my things, concern my things with too great and too marvelous for me, said the king of God's kingdom. Be humble before the Lord. Maybe you're worried about provision. Remember, God's word teaches us in a holy life. We look to him and he says that I will provide for you. Do not worry. Do not seek after the things the Gentiles seek after. Maybe you're worried about the rise and the fall of nations. Well, Daniel has something for you because God gives the kingdom of men to whom he will. Maybe you're wondering about eternity. Jesus has a word for you. Father, I desire that those whom you have given me that they might be with me where I am, that they might see my glory. You see, a holy life is a life comforted by the grace of God in any and every circumstance. And a holy life is a life established to the glory of God, comforted in him and in his kindness, but also established looking for that glory. And there are really two outlets of a life established that is living to the glory of God. And you can see it here in verse 17. May you be established for every good word and work. Now, certainly this means our words should be uh, directed to the praise and worship of God. Our words to encouragement. But I would ask you to search your own heart and consider your life. Consider your interactions. Consider uh, your, uh, your verbal output, maybe your social media output. What dominates the content? of your words. 
Is it the ills of our day? Is it the constant, the sky is falling mentality? Is it discouragement? Is it frustration? Is it uh, ungodliness? Or do you speak of Christ? Are you more ready to speak of Christ and his glory and his kingdom than you are to speak of the fleeting things of this world? It doesn't mean we should never speak of the things of this world. We ought to. We ought to speak to them. Speak, bring the word of God to bear to them. We ought to speak much of our Savior. We ought to speak much of him. One another, as you encourage one another here in this community, you ought to speak much of him, unbelievers, as we seek to evangelize those who are lost. A life established to the glory of God will be a life that is characterized by words that seek his glory. And secondly, by works that adorn that profession with proof of its genuineness and authenticity. Works of mercy, works of faithfulness, works of generosity, kindness. All of these things that seek uh, to adorn our profession and put the Gentiles to shame at the coming of Christ. I wonder if you're asking, what do I do? Preparing for this. I see things happening. Maybe you read too much news. What do I do? Cultivate in your heart gratitude to God. Steal your heart. Commit yourself to maintain faithfulness to the word, the divinely given apostolic gospel. Search your life. Cultivate holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Here's the thing, my friends. A life that is lived out according to these graciously given and never revoked standing orders is a life that is indestructible. It's a life that will not and cannot lose. Is there deceit everywhere? Yes. And there's nothing new under the sun. So love the truth. Are there lies everywhere? Yes. Then speak and live in the truth. Are there sorrows? Are you discouraged? Perhaps to the latter, certainly to the former. Regardless of whatever these things happen, even in the worst events imaginable, the call here is for the glory of Christ and because of the grace of the triune God, these standing orders remain. And I would remind you that they will until Christ returns. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for directing our hearts in these ways, and we pray that you would give us a Christ-like constancy and stability in the midst of these years. Lord, we pray that you would enable us for the glory of Christ to be profoundly grateful for the things you have done and what you have shown us in your word and in your providence and in redemption. We pray that you enable us to be faithful in contending earnestly for that truth, that faith once and for all delivered to the saints. We would stand fast upon it and hold fast to it. And Lord, we pray that you would indeed make us holy, thought, word, and deed. We might be conformed more and more to the image and glory of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.